Let's get straight to the point. You want to grow your portfolio to deal with the rising cost of inflation to pay off your debt or your mortgage, pretty much anything standing in the way of you and financial freedom, right? Well, with Yahoo Finance, you can get access to the news, data, and tools that you need in order to help you reach that financial freedom. And when it comes to your financial future, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, you've invested all that you can. And now you need to take those investments to the next level by using what every financial great uses. Yahoo Finance. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been the brand behind every great investor. They're the number one finance destination, producing a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination. That's yahoofinance.com. When it comes to weight loss, no two people are the same. That's why Noom builds personalized plans based on your unique psychology and biology. Take Brittany. After years of unsustainable diets, Noom helped her lose 20 pounds and keep it off. I was definitely in a yo-yo cycle for years of just losing weight, gaining weight, and it was exhausting. And Stephanie. She's a former D1 athlete who knew she couldn't out-train her diet, and she lost 38 pounds. My relationship to food before Noom was never consistent. And Evan, he can't stand salads, but he still lost 50 pounds with Noom. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. Even through the pickiness, Noom taught me that building better habits builds a healthier lifestyle. I'm not doing this to get to a number. I'm doing this to feel better. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom users compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. The Peter Schiff Show. I'd like to thank Bambi for supporting the Peter Schiff Show podcast. HR manager salaries can average over $70,000 a year, but only Bambi gives you a dedicated HR manager for just $99 a month. Get your free HR compliance audit at Bambi.com slash goal. That's Bambi, B-A-M-B-E-E dot com slash gold. Well, the St. Patrick's Day green that was on everybody's screens on Wednesday turned into a sea of red on Thursday. And if you remember the podcast I did on Wednesday, I said that I didn't think the market would ultimately take Powell's or the Fed's comments as a positive because I didn't think the Fed was dovish enough, even though it was the most dovish Fed statement and the most dovish press conference I've ever seen. Of course, the next one will be even more dovish because we get progressively more dovish with each and every Fed meeting. But the reason I said that I didn't think the Fed was dovish enough was that they didn't come clean and they didn't confess that the Fed is going to expand its asset purchase program to stop long-term interest rates from rising. Because without that commitment, long-term interest rates are going to keep going up. In fact, it's not just a commitment, because in this case, actions really will speak louder than words. The Fed can't just talk about putting a ceiling on interest rates. 
the Fed is actually going to have to build that ceiling by going into the bond market and buying up these treasuries that everybody else wants to get rid of. Because what happened on Thursday is the bond vigilantes came out selling and yields surged to new post-pandemic highs. The yield on the 10-year treasury, this is on Thursday, got all the way up to one spot seven five four. So now better than one and three quarters percent. And the yield on the 30-year treasury, that got above two and a half percent. The high was two spot five oh five. This was a big rise from the previous day, and the markets did not like that at all. The Nasdaq plunged just over three percent. It closed on the low. NASDAQ itself was down better than 400 points on the day. Now, the Dow didn't fare nearly as badly as the markets went back to the rotation away from growth-oriented stocks towards value dividend-paying defensive stocks. Now, on Friday, yesterday, there was a little bit of a movement back into the growth-oriented stocks because the NASDAQ actually gained back some of what it lost on Thursday. NASDAQ was up almost 100 points yesterday, while the Dow dropped 234 points. But still, over the two days, a much bigger drop in the NASDAQ than the Dow, even when you factor in the slight recovery. And I think the reason we got a bit of recovery was because Bond yields backed down a bit. Bond prices rose. So we ended up settling the week with the 10-year treasury at a yield of 1.732. Still a pretty big move because we ended last week at 1.635. And on the 30-year, we ended up at 2.451. So a little bit below the 2.505 high but still a pretty good gain on the week because we ended last week with the yield on the 30-year at 2-spot 402. And all of the major stock market averages finished the week in the red. And the reason that I said that the Fed needs to show its cards with respect to what it's going to do to stop interest rates from rising is because the market can't figure out what they're holding, even though it should be pretty obvious. I mean, You know, if you're talking about a poker face, the Fed has one. I mean, look at Powell. It's obvious what he's going to do. I mean, the bluff isn't going to fool anybody, but apparently a lot of people in the markets are fooled and they just don't believe Powell when he says that they're going to keep interest rates at zero despite everything that they have forecast. I think the markets are basically saying there's no way this can happen and that the Fed is going to have to raise interest rates sooner rather than later. And so the market is doing it sooner, not waiting for the later. I mean, think about what the Federal Reserve is now forecasting because they upped their forecast for growth and inflation on Wednesday. The Federal Reserve's official forecast now for GDP for 2021 is 6.5%. 5% growth. They're looking for unemployment to be back down to 4.5%, and they think inflation is going to move up to 2.4%. Now, given that forecast, 6.5% growth 
4.5% unemployment and 2.4% inflation, they're still saying they're going to keep the Fed funds rate at zero, right? The discount rate is one quarter of 1%. So one of these things doesn't belong, right? If you remember the old Sesame Street song, which one of these things doesn't belong? 6.5% GDP, 4.5% unemployment, 2.4% inflation, 0% interest rates, right? One of these things is not like the other, and obviously it's interest rates. How can the Fed possibly justify 0% interest rates and quantitative easing, right? Because that's in the mix too. How can all of this happen while we have 6.5% growth 4.5% unemployment, which is low unemployment uh, by historical standards, and inflation at 2.4%, well above their target of 2%. It doesn't make any sense. And it doesn't make any sense to the markets either. So the markets assume that interest rates are going to have to go up. Despite the fact that the Fed is saying that they're not, the markets just don't believe it because the data just doesn't justify this type of policy. I mean, first of all, think about a 6.5% GDP growth rate. When was the last time we saw a year where the U.S. economy had 6.5% growth? And again, remember, I don't think that the economy is actually growing. I think the GDP is going to be a bigger number, but I don't think that signifies really economic growth. I mean, first of all, you have to deflate the GDP. And yes, that is after the deflation. That's not what the Fed thinks nominal GDP is. That's what they think real GDP is. But I think that deflator is phony. I think that it's understating uh, the amount of inflation. And so I don't believe the number, but I don't think it's a growing economy that the GDP is measuring. We're measuring all the money that we're spending. And where are we getting the money? We're not earning it, we're printing it. And what are we spending it on? Imports and stuff like that. So I don't think it's really a measure of economic growth, but For the purpose of this discussion, I'm just going to call it uh, growth. Um, But when was the last time we had 6.5% GDP growth? Well, you got to go all the way back to 1984. That was the last time we had annual GDP growth that was as high or higher than 6.5%. In fact, if you go back to the end of World War II, There have only been five years that GDP growth has been higher than 6.5%. And there's one year where it tied. It was 6.5%. So this is going to be one of the seven best years for GDP growth, strongest years since the end of World War II, where you have to go back to, you know, the early 1950s. The war ended in 1945. Now, I decided to take a look at these previous years to look at what was going on in the economy. So in 1984, we had 7.4% growth, right? This was the Reagan years, and we were coming out of a very big recession. I mean, the recession we had in 1980, 1981 was the deepest since the Great Depression, right? It, 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 it didn't lose that distinction until the Great Recession of 2008-2009. So until that point, it was the worst downturn that we had experienced since the uh, Great Depression. So we're coming out of it, 1984, we have 7.4% GDP growth. Inflation during that year was 3.9%. 
So higher than the 2.4% that the Fed is now forecasting. Unemployment was 7.3%, right? Which is considerably higher than what the Fed is forecasting now. So where were interest rates in 1984? Well, they started the year, the discount rate started at 11.75%. And it ended the year at eight and a quarter. So the Fed was cutting interest rates for most of 1984, but the lowest they got was eight and a quarter. And that's with GDP growth at 7.4, inflation higher than it is and unemployment higher. So despite that high unemployment, we still had interest rates at eight and a quarter. Yes, the Fed was cutting them, but they didn't cut them to zero. I mean, they, they cut them to eight and a quarter. Oh, and by the way, in case some people don't know the difference between the Fed funds rate and the discount rate. I'm talking about discount rates, not Fed funds rate. Today, the discount rate is 25 basis points. It's the Fed funds rate that's basically zero because the discount rate needs to be higher than the Fed funds rate. So that's why the discount rate can't ever be zero because then the Fed funds rate would have to be negative and the Fed doesn't want to go negative. So the lowest they can get the discount rate is a quarter of a percent. So I'm giving you the numbers for the discount rate. That means the Fed funds rate was lower than that, right? But not probably not that much lower, but I'm using discount rates uh, for the purpose of this discussion. So clearly, I mean, rates were way, way higher back in 1984. So let's go back to the next year where we had GDP growth that was the same or greater than six and a half. And that was 1966. And that was 6.5. So we had the exact same 6.5 growth rate in 1966 that the Fed is now forecasting for 2021. Now, of course, this is just a forecast. So it may not come true. We don't know. But this is what the Fed thinks is going to happen. So the last time we had uh, GDP growth of six and a half percent, 1966, the inflation rate for that year was 3.5%. So definitely higher than the inflation rate that the Fed is forecasting. Um, But the unemployment rate was 3.6. So considerably less unemployment than what the Fed was forecasting. So a little more inflation, a little less unemployment. Where were interest rates in 1966? Well, they started the year, the discount rate was 4.5, and the Fed raised it to 5.25, by the end of the year. So with relatively low unemployment and inflation that was three and a half percent, which was, you know, kind of high, the Fed was doing what you might expect. And the Fed was raising interest rates at that time from four and a half to five and a quarter because we had strong economic growth of six and a half percent. But today, right, we have the same where the Fed is forecasting the same six and a half percent unemployment, but it's not raising rates at all. In fact, it's leaving them at zero, which is considerably lower than the four and a half that we started 1966 at, and certainly even more lower uh, than the five and a quarter that we finished the year. So that's 1966. Now look at 1959. Economic growth in 1959 was 6.9%. That's another strong year of economic growth. What was going on that year? Well, we had inflation of 1.7%. So we had lower inflation than what the Fed thinks we're going to have now. Uh, 5.3% unemployment, higher unemployment than what the Fed expects. Where were interest rates in 1959? Well, the discount rate started the year at 2.5% and ended the year 
at 4%. So the Fed was hiking rates even though inflation was below 2%. And even though unemployment was up at 5.3%, the Fed was hiking rates. We had 6.9% economic growth. The Fed was increasing interest rates. Now let's go back to 1955. That year we had 7.1% economic growth. Strong year of economic growth. Where were the numbers? Inflation was just 0.4%. I mean, I bet they weren't panicking back then that, oh my God, we may have deflation. We're way below 2%. Inflation was 0.4, not even a half a percent for the year. Unemployment was 4.2%, so lower than uh, what the Fed is forecasting. And what was the discount rate? Well, it started the year at 1.5% and it went up to 2.5%. So the Fed was hiking rates, even though inflation was below a half a percent a year. The Fed wasn't worried that it was going to push the economy into deflation. They were raising interest rates despite the low inflation. We had 7.1% economic growth. Now, the only other two years that had higher than 6.5% growth in the post-World War II era were 1950 and 1951, which was during the Korean War. And so we had 8% growth in 1951 and 8.7% growth in 1950. What was going on with inflation? Well, inflation was pretty high. 1951, inflation was 6%, and in 1950, it was 5%. But unemployment was still low. 1951, 3.1% unemployment and uh, 4.3% in 1950. So everybody was working. A lot of people were working, you know, in a war effort in Korea. But because the Fed was financing uh, the war with some money printing, we had high inflation. We had 5% inflation in 1950 and 6% inflation in 1951. Where was the discount rate? Well, it was pretty low. It was all the way down to 1.75%. Now, that's low, but it ain't zero. It's not 0.25%. So even during the Korean War, when we had massive monetary stimulus to help pay for the war, it wasn't nearly as massive as the stimulus we have now, and we're not even at war. I mean, all we did is fight COVID. We didn't fight the Koreans. But even given the wartime environment, the lowest of, you know, that the Fed took the discount rate was one and three quarters percent. So what we are experiencing now, at least according to what the Fed is forecasting, six and a half percent growth, very strong economic growth, four and a half percent unemployment, historically low. I mean, more years than not, we've had more than four and a half percent unemployment, inflation of 2.4 percent, which is the highest inflation rate that we've probably reported on an annual basis since 2011, that the Fed is going to keep interest rates at 0%. It doesn't make any sense. And the whole reason that the Fed is claiming that it can get away with this policy and the reason that it says that it's confident that the inflation rate of 2.4% that it's forecasting, the reason it's so certain that it's transitory is because Over the past couple of decades, we haven't had much inflation. He keeps talking about how we've had this trend to disinflation. And so because all of these factors have been working to keep inflation low all of these years, 
that all those factors are going to continue to remain in play. And so that any temporary bump that we get in inflation due to temporary supply shortages and the reopening of the economy are just going to be a blip on the radar that the Fed can ignore because it's confident that the inflation rate is just going to come back down to the sub 2% level that it's occupied, you know, for the past couple of decades or so. And there is no real reason to believe that this is going to be the case. I mean, first of all, in order to believe that, you have to completely ignore the monetary growth that we have now that is unprecedented during that time period. Yes, we did have QE1, 2, and 3, but that's nothing compared to what we got now. And look at the enormity of the budget deficits and look at what a Democratic administration is likely to do to these already enormous budget deficits. You know, it's like when I used to argue with people about the housing bubble back in, you know, the 2000s, early, you know, 2003, 4, 5, 6, and I was saying that real estate prices were going to fall on a national level. I was predicting, you know, like a 30% drop. And when people would argue with me, one of the points they would always make was that, well, Peter, that's never happened before. There's never been a point where real estate prices have fallen annually nationwide in this country. It's happened in regions, maybe California prices went down or maybe, you know, Florida or Texas. But for the nation as a whole, it's never happened. Prices have always gone up. And what I would say is, well, that may be true, but you can't ignore what happened recently. Prices have just gone straight up. We've never seen this big an increase in real estate prices in such a short time. So why would you expect the future to behave like the past when it comes to price declines, when it's not behaving like the past, when it comes to price increases? We have just had an unprecedented increase in real estate prices. So why wouldn't it be followed by an unprecedented decrease? The same thing applies here. We have just had a real unprecedented expansion of monetary policy, fiscal policy, more stimulus than we've ever thrown into economy in history, yet we expect inflation to act as if nothing has changed. Like we we didn't do all this stuff, just like ignore the big run up in home prices and just assume that they're at a permanent plateau and they're never going to come down. You can't ignore this unprecedented monetary expansion and expect it not to show up in consumer prices. Of course, it is going to show up. It is already showing up and Powell wants to claim that it's transitory. And, you know, it's interesting thing, too, because when you look back at these years of so-called low inflation, you have to recognize that when did it all really get started? So it all started with the Boskin Commission. These guys got together, uh, I think, in 1995. They, they concluded their study in 1996. And they came out and they said, oh, my God, what do you know? The CPI is overstating inflation by like 1.1% a year. I think that was their finding. So Congress then, now armed with this ammunition of, oh my God, the CPI is overstating inflation, they made major revisions to the CPI formula in 1988. This was how you compute the CPI. Now, they have made changes in the past too, and I think they've made some more since, but this was a huge year. Major, major changes 
because they wanted to incorporate the findings of the Boskin Commission. They wanted to fix this broken CPI. Well, they fixed it, right? The fix was in. And so now, as far as I'm concerned, the CPI is understating inflation. I don't believe it ever overstated it. But even if it did, based on the way they rejiggered the inputs, it is now clearly understating inflation. So Powell is basing his belief that inflation is going to stay low in the future based on the fact that it's been low in the past. But the only reason it's been so low is because the government is lying about the level. The CPI is not an honest measure. So you can't just look at the CPI and then claim there's no inflation while ignoring what's actually happened to consumer prices despite what the CPI says. I mean, go again, look at the video that I did on YouTube. And I've talked about this a few times where I actually looked at the CPI. And one of the most interesting aspects that I found was I looked at newspapers and magazines. And I did this in 2013. And I looked at the change in prices from the 10-year period 2003 to 2013. And according to the official CPI, the price of newspapers and magazines increased by 30% over those 10 years. Now, what I did, and this was easy to do, is I went back online and I found photographs of newspaper and magazine covers. Newsweek, um, Time, New York Times, uh, Wall Street Journal. Right? I took like the top, I don't remember, maybe 20 most heavily circulated newspapers and magazines. And I looked at what the price was written on the cover in 2003. Then I took those exact same newspapers and magazines in 2013 and I looked at the prices that were written on the covers, right? So there's nothing there that can lie. Those are the actual prices on the covers of the magazines and newspapers that you pay if you go to a newsstand and buy them, right? And so then I said, okay, how much did prices go up during these 10 years for this basket of newspapers and magazines? Because the government claims it's 30%. Well, I did the math and the actual increase in the prices was 130%. The government was off by a mile. How do you take price increases of 130%, shove them into the CPI on the back end, and then they come out on the front end of a 0.3% increase? That's it. Now, obviously, there were some kind of crazy hedonic adjustments where maybe the government assumed that the magazines were now of better quality than they were. And so somehow, because they were of better quality, um, uh, they reduced the price increase. My guess is they're probably of worse quality. We probably printed them on cheaper paper and there's probably more ads in there. You know, And I don't know, maybe they assumed that more people didn't buy them on the newsstands, that they had a subscription, and so therefore they weren't paying the cover price. I don't know. Whatever the government had to do, they manufactured a lie, and they took a 130% increase in prices and turned it into just a 30% increase. Now, that's just one small category of the CPI. So these numbers are all BS, yet the Fed is relying on these BS numbers to believe that they can keep interest rates at zero, even though the economy is growing 6.5%, unemployment is 4.5%, and that the inflation rate that goes up to 2.4% is going to just fall back down and not keep on rising. 
And the other things that they overlook too is a lot of these factors that were helping to delay the impact on consumer prices of the inflationary monetary policies that the Fed has pursued in the past, I think these factors are going to wear off. I don't think we're going to be able to export as much of this inflation to our trading partners. I don't think that the Chinese, the Japanese, and everybody else are going to buy as much U.S. Treasuries in the future as they have in the past. In fact, I think they're going to be selling U.S. Treasuries, which means the Fed is going to be on the hook to buy more and more of these. So there's a lot more money printing. But that also means we're not going to import all the deflation from China. We're actually going to import the inflation, right? The inflation is coming back. And labor, right? Look what's going on with the Biden administration. We're going to jack up the, the minimum wage. We're going to impose higher and more costly regulations on American businesses, which are going to result in higher prices for American consumers. So a lot of these factors that may have been working to kind of keep consumer prices from rising faster, given all the inflation the Fed has been creating, those factors aren't there anymore. Plus, I think the dollar is going to fall through the floor. I think we're going to see a very, very weak dollar, much weaker than anything we've seen uh, since Greenspan was, uh, was Fed chairman. And so this is going to be a huge problem for domestic prices, given the enormity of our trade deficits, which are at record highs right now. So this is ridiculous for Powell and the Fed to make these assumptions. And right now, I think the markets are like, yeah, there's no way. And they expect the Fed to raise rates. Now, I don't think they will. I think the Fed is going to cave. I think the Fed is going to increase the size of QE. The question is, when will the markets realize that that's what the Fed is going to do? In fact, if you read between the lines, based on what Powell has already said in response to questions in the Q&A, he said, well, he will be concerned about the rise in interest rates if it impacts uh, the recovery, if it gets in the way of their rosy forecasts for GDP growth and unemployment, and then they will do something about it. So the question is, how high will rates have to rise and how low might markets have to fall before the Fed is willing to admit that it is now working at odds with their forecast and that the Fed is now going to use its tools to artificially suppress long-term interest rates. That's why I've been calling it a game of chicken. That's what's happening. The markets are going to keep raising interest rates until the Fed blinks, until the Fed, you know, caves in and says, okay, no more. And now we're doing bigger QE. I know from experience when you're running a business, HR issues are a killer. Wrongful termination suits, discrimination, minimum wage requirement, lots of labor regulations. All of these are potential landmines for small business. And HR manager salaries ain't cheap. They average around $70,000 a year or more. That's why Bambi, spelled B-A-M-B-E-E, was created specifically for small businesses. Now you can get a dedicated HR manager who can craft your HR policy, maintain your compliance, and do it all for just 99 bucks a month. With Bambi, you can change HR from your biggest liability to your greatest strength. 
Your dedicated HR manager is available by phone, email, for real-time chats, from onboarding determinations. They customize your policies to fit your business. And they help you manage your employees day-to-day, all for just $99 a month. Month-to-month, no hidden fees, and you can cancel at any time. You didn't start your business because you wanted to spend your time on HR and compliance. Let Bambi do that for you. So get some help and get your free HR audit today. You go to Bambi.com gold right now and schedule your free HR audit. That's Bambi.com gold spelled B-A-M to the B-E-E dot com gold. In fact, look at what happened to the data we got on Thursday from the Philly Fed. I mean, this really highlights how far behind the curve the Fed is when it comes to inflation and really how laughable their assertions are. The prices paid component from the Philly Fed just had its highest reading in one month since 1980. 1980. Now, what was going on in 1980? I just went over some other statistics. 1980, the CPI in 1980 was up 12.5% for the year. So in order to see a Philly Fed prices paid reading this high, you got to go all the way back to a year where the CPI was rising at 12.5%. Now, granted, it was a different CPI. It was a more honest CPI, but still... 12.5%, what was going on in the economy? We were actually in recession. GDP in 1980, remember, this was this big recession. GDP was minus 0.3% in 1980. Where was unemployment? 7.2%, pretty high, right? You know where the Fed funds rate was or the discount rate was in 1980? 13%. Now, that wasn't the highest it got. It got above 14% in, I think, 81 but we were pretty close to the peak. We had 13% interest rates the last time we had a Philly Fed uh, prices paid reading this high. The Fed was at 13%. Where is it now? It's at zero, right? So obviously this is a massive policy mistake of historic proportions. But of course, the reason the Fed is making this mistake is because it has no choice. It can't act responsibly when everyone else in government is acting recklessly and irresponsibly. The Fed has already painted itself into this box. Look, what was the proper policy response to the pandemic? It was to raise interest rates. It was to cut back on money supply. We were producing less stuff, so we needed less money. Otherwise, prices were going to go up. The original purpose of the Fed was to provide an elastic money supply so that when the economy was contracting, money supply would contract too. But the Fed did the opposite. At a time where the whole world, not just Americans were producing less, where the whole world produced less, America, the Fed printed more. So we gave Americans more money to spend even though the world was producing less stuff to buy. So that is a recipe for a surge in consumer prices, and that's exactly what we're going to get. And for the Federal Reserve to simply assume that this surge is transitory just because we had low inflation in the past, and they're going to assume that we're going to return to those levels and completely ignore the monetary policy changes that have taken place that are unprecedented is ridiculous. And, you know, the market, I think, senses this, which is why they assume that rates are going to go up. In fact, look what happened to oil prices 
on Thursday, they plunged. Oil was down over $5 a barrel. I mean, just a huge, one of the biggest drops we've seen. We recovered yesterday, so we're back above $60. We're at $61.53 is where we closed. Remember, we had gotten all the way up to 67 over 67 last week. And the low yesterday was 58.20. I mean, so we had a big drop, but why did oil prices plunge? People started to worry about rising interest rates slowing down the economy. They started to worry about the Fed being forced to raise short-term interest rates based on higher inflation that we saw in those numbers on Thursday, right? We got those uh, inflation numbers from the Philly Fed on Thursday. So the markets were worried. But what the markets really should be worried about is not that the Fed is going to fight inflation by raising interest rates sooner than they expect, but the fact that they're not going to fight inflation at all. That's the one thing that the Fed is being honest about. They're not raising rates. They're not going to fight inflation. doesn't really matter how high inflation gets. They can pretend that there's a level that they would actually do something, but they won't confess what that level is because in reality, it does not exist. So they they don't want to set up a benchmark or a goalpost that they're ultimately going to have to move every time they approach it. So rather than set up a goalpost that they know is meaningless, they're just not going to have one at all. They just say, well, you know, if inflation is too high without saying what that is, then we have the tools to deal with it, even though they don't. That's what the markets really should be concerned about. That's what should worry them. Not that the Fed's going to fight inflation, but that it won't. And again, that's what's continually suppressing gold. That's what's supporting the dollar. It's this false notion that the Fed is going to fight inflation and that the Fed is going to win the battle. When the markets understand that there's not going to be a fight, that the Fed's going to surrender without even getting into the ring, right? That's when the bottom falls out of the dollar and that's when gold goes through the roof. But before that realization dawns on a larger number of market participants, we have to act. We need to be positioned now. And I like the way the action is moving in the markets because everything I'm seeing now with this shift from momentum to value and dividend payers, I'm looking at how a lot of my stocks have been performing, particularly my non-gold stocks, and they are doing very well now, finally, relative to the U.S. market. We're seeing a lot of new highs in some of these foreign value stocks, even on days where the U.S. market is going down. The only thing that isn't really happening yet is the big move in the mining stocks, but I think that's coming. In fact, I saw some pretty constructive action in those stocks the last couple of days, even though we had some decent $20 sell-offs in the price of gold, a lot of these mining stocks held in there and finished positive. And in fact, we had a very nice last half hour uh, in those stocks Yesterday, in fact, the GDX was up almost 1%, 0.8%, and the GDXJ was up 1.65%. And most of that gain happening in the final half hour of trading. So some money came into the market near the close and bought up uh, gold. Gold was up today, uh, about seven bucks or so, or Friday, but did not even recover all of the losses from Thursday. But gold did manage to finish the week positive, which is a good sign because stock market had a negative week, but the gold market had a positive week. 
as did gold stocks. Both the GDX and the GDXJ saw pretty good gains on the week. So there's a bit of a divergence here now. We're starting to see gold and gold stocks moving up while we're seeing the U.S. stock market moving down and gold moved up and gold stocks moved up even as interest rates moved up, which hasn't been happening, but is going to be the trend of the future. This is what's going to be happening and this is what's going to be the most problematic because this is the worst possible combination. We're going to have rising interest rates and rising gold prices simultaneously because this is just nominal rates going up. Real rates are negative and they're going to get more negative. So we're going to have the bond market falling. We're going to have the dollar falling and gold rising all at the same time, right? This is what you would expect in stagflation. People don't want to own dollars. They don't want to own bonds because inflation is getting worse and the Federal Reserve is impotent to do anything about it because the economy is weak. And so the Fed doesn't want to hurt a weak economy by fighting inflation. And so they try to help the weak economy by creating even more inflation. And this is a toxic combination. Ultimately, it's going to lead to a sovereign debt crisis and a U.S. dollar crisis. And then the Fed's going to have no choice but to raise rates unless they want to allow hyperinflation to completely destroy the economy. But that is the decision that Fed policymakers are ultimately going to have to grapple with. And one final point I want to make, I kind of circle back a little bit to my talk about China and how I don't think we're going to be able to rely on the Chinese to help mitigate our inflation problem the way we did in the decades past. Because remember, the way this worked is America ran these big deficits and we sent all this uh, money that the Fed printed over to China and China took that money and loaned it right back to us by buying U.S. treasuries and then they gave us low-cost goods. And so all these goods were flowing in from China and all this paper was flowing out. So that was keeping consumer prices from going up. I mean, if we didn't have the Chinese, if we had to spend all this money the Fed was printing on products that we made in America, well, then prices would have gone up. But we didn't have to do that. We were able to unload our inflation on the Chinese who recycled it into U.S. treasuries. So they bid up treasury prices instead of consumer good prices. And Americans got all this stuff that we didn't actually make. Well, all that's going to reverse. The Chinese yuan is going to go way up. The Chinese are not going to be exporting nearly as much stuff to the United States. And we're going to have to eat all that paper. The paper that we print is going to stay here. And in fact, the Chinese are already cashing in a lot of the paper that they already own. So a lot of those inflation chickens are coming home to roost, right? The the wave is going to come back and crash right on us. But you can also look at the deterioration in Sino-U.S. relations, even uh, with Biden. You know, Trump is gone and he was supposedly the big boogeyman. But of course, Um, Biden administration, they want to act like they're still tough on China, right? They don't want to be seen as weak, right? You know, whereas Trump was really tough and Biden doesn't want to look weak. So, you know, we just had this summit that's going on up in Alaska and you can see the tension uh, between the two countries. But one of the things that I think is the most interesting aspect of it is that the U.S. is trying to lecture China about its human rights violations and how, you know, the Chinese have, have, have better clean up their act and the way they're treating Hong Kong and, and, and all this, right? So we're trying to get on this high horse and lecture China on, you know, their, their human rights failures and civil rights and, and, and what they need to do, right? And, and how are we doing that? Because the Chinese pointed out correctly 
right? Or incorrectly, depending on your <laughs> frame of mind. But the Chinese are like, wait a minute. I mean, what about this is the, the pot calling the kettle black, right? Talk about, you know, not throwing stones when you live in a glass house. The Chinese threw right back in our faces the fact that America has been victimizing its citizens for decades, right? We have African-Americans who have been the victims of systemic racism, institutionalized racism that permeates the entire country. We are oppressing an entire race of people in our own country. In fact, we have racist cops running riled on the streets, gunning down innocent blacks in cold blood simply because they're black and the cops are racist, right? All of this is what's happening. And so the Chinese are like, hey, clean up your act. You know, before you try to lecture us on what we're doing wrong, you better address all of this racism, this systemic racism. You know, you better do something about your own protests your own violence because your own people are acting up because they're so oppressed in your country, right? So how dare you lecture us given your your situation, right? You don't have clean hands. Uh, and so you, you're not in a position uh, to, uh, to tell us what to do. Now, what is the Biden administration going to do? How are they supposed to respond to this? Because obviously, if Trump was still president, they couldn't say any of this stuff because Donald Trump would say, what are you talking about? There's no systemic racism in the United States. That's not true. We're not oppressing anybody because of their race or or any other reason. That's all a bunch of nonsense. See, Trump could have said that. And Trump could have said, what are you talking about that we have a bunch of racist cops gunning down uh, innocent blacks? That's just not true. Here's the statistics. That's not happening, right? So Trump would be able able to push back against the Chinese if they tried to say that kind of nonsense. But the Biden administration can't. The Biden administration is stuck sleeping in the bed that it made. The Biden administration has signed on to all of this nonsense from the left that there is systemic racism, that we do have a huge culture of victims. In fact, we may even need reparations right, to make amends to all the people that we have been victimizing, you know, over uh, the generations. So what can they do? They can't tell the Chinese that they're wrong. So all we can do to the Chinese is say, yeah, you know, I guess that's true. We have our own problems, but at least we're willing to admit that we have these problems. At least we're willing to admit that we're a racist society, that we're an oppressive society, but at least we're trying to do something about it. That's our position. And then the Chinese can say, fine, that's your position, then fine. You do something about it. You fix your problems. You solve your systemic racism. You make amends to the people that you've been oppressing. And once you fixed all those problems and you're now a just society, well, then if you want to criticize us, if you want to make demands on us, well, then fine. But until that point, then don't say anything. And I think the Chinese have a very, very strong position that they're now in. Uh, and, and there's nothing that the, the, the U.S. could do. I mean, we're in a box similar to the box that the Fed has. Because once the Biden administration accepts this nonsense, 
they can't just tell the Chinese, oh, come on, we don't really have these problems. I mean, we're just doing that to get votes. I mean, we're just saying that. I mean, we don't really have systemic racism. I mean, come on, you guys don't actually believe that, do you? And they probably don't believe it, but they know the PR box that the Biden administration is in, and they're probably laughing about it hysterically to themselves, but they certainly want to take advantage of it as much as they can, and there's nothing that the U.S. can do. So the, the Chinese are in a much better position economically, politically, than they've ever been vis-a-vis the United States. So there's no way uh, they are going to uh, be in a position or willing to you know, take these bullets for us when it comes to inflation. We're going to have to deal with it ourselves. And that's just another reason that Powell is completely wrong in his assertions, whether he actually believes them or not, because he doesn't have a choice. Because even if the Fed thinks there's going to be high inflation, what are they supposed to do? They can't say, well, we're going to have high inflation and we're not going to do anything about it because that would be a disaster. They can't say we're going to have high inflation and we're going to fight it because that would be a disaster. So all they could do is lie, even if they know what's going to happen. Now, of course, maybe they don't. Those are always the two possibilities. They're either liars or they're ignorant, one or the other. They're lying or they're dumb, but neither of those two possibilities is good when it comes to uh, you know, our Federal Reserve. But that's why the only possible response from an investor is to do exactly what I have been forecasting or exactly what I have been recommending all of these years and just recognize that even though this is playing out later than I originally expected because we were able to kick the can down the road far longer than I expected, it's playing out on a much bigger stage now. And it's a much bigger crisis because we have far more debt now. The problem got much bigger than I expected during those years of can kicking. So all the advice that I gave years ago is not only more appropriate and more timely now, but more important because the losses that people will suffer who don't follow this advice are so much greater. And I think the profits to those who do will also be that much greater. Mm-hmm.